hemophilia. Hello, fellow Anglophiles, and welcome to another episode of Anglophilia. I'm Stephanie Callis. I'm Kaylee McMahon, and Stephanie, we get to talk about Holy Grail today. <laughs> I'm in such a good mood right now. <laughs> Same these. I don't know why that was so stupid. It's we're we're in a very silly mood because uh, Camelot is a very silly place, and we've been spending a lot of time there. Yes. So Monty Python and the Holy Grail was technically Monty Python's second film, the first being, and now for something completely different, which we won't be discussing because it was just a collection of their flying circus sketches reshot. But Holy Grail was their first full-length feature with entirely new material, and the first one that they directed themselves. Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam jointly directed the piece, which was conceived, written, and performed, of course, by all the members of Monty Python, and additionally featured performances from Connie Booth, Carol Cleveland, and Neil Innes, who also wrote the music for the songs and was a frequent Python collaborator to the point that, like Carol Cleveland, he is often referred to as an honorary seventh Python. The movie was shot on location in Scotland on a tiny budget, and since its release in April of 1975, it has gone on to achieve global popularity and become one of the best-loved comic films of all time. I first saw this movie when I was very young. It was a family vacation. We were staying in this really cute bed and breakfast, and they actually had a catalog. It was kind of sweet. It was just in, like... I don't know if it was a trapper keeper, but inside mm -hmm. were laminated pictures of all of the movies that they had available that you could rent and watch in your hotel Ooh. room, like with the on Love a VHS it. tape. That's adorably retro. And that was when my parents, I guess, were like, oh, today's the day. <laughs> and I absolutely loved it. I know that I was old enough to be able to read, but I think that I was getting a little bit of assistance with the subtitles in the beginning about the moose. And <laughs> yes. I think that even from then, I was just absolutely dying it's wonderful i don't know the last time i watched it but this was something that i think i watched a lot in like elementary and middle school and hmm. tell me if you agree but i kind of feel like a lot of people know this movie oh absolutely i mean this is maybe I, I don't know i'm pulling this out of my ass so i could be wrong but maybe probably our most well-known property that we've talked about so far yeah. on the show which feels like a little bit of pressure because as we've learned throughout our whole Monty Python season, it's very difficult to talk about sketch. And this movie is ultimately just a series of sketches. And, you know, it's so funny and so popular and well-loved that, like, how do we talk about it without just reverting to every socially awkward 12-year-old boy in the history of the world since 1975, you know? Oh, because like, I don't plan on forcing you to listen to me quote the entire thing. So let's check that right off the list. That is very true. Um, you, you said that for you, it was sort of more of an elementary school and middle school thing. For me, it was more of a middle school and high school thing. And I don't want to say that Monty Python was the only good thing about being 16, but for me, it was maybe one of the best things about being 16. Okay. I have such strong memories. Just hearing the theme song, you know, dun, 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 it just made me feel such a rush of nostalgic good feeling about a simpler time and, uh, and just loving this movie to pieces. Yeah, no, same here. But I was trying to think of other movies that people just kind of know. People in America, you you could say, she turned me into a newt. Yeah. You could do the, the coconut. I'm doing it with my hands right now. <laughs> you can't see me. You could do that. But I was trying to think of other movies that are just known. And the other ones that I came up with are both Mike Myers movies. Because I feel like you could say to anybody, yeah, baby. 
of course, this was a very quick brainstorm, and I think that it's from yes. the lens of my own childhood, but I yeah. immediately thought of Austin Powers in Wayne's World. Oh, I thought you were going to say the love guru. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, I wonder if Mike Myers has any interviews where he talks about Monty Python, and... In the initial Google search, the very first thing that popped up was that he made a cameo in one of their most recent live reunions. Mike Myers himself oh, made a cameo, and I thought, oh, thus I'm correct about everything <laughs> that I've just oh, yeah. said. Yeah. I, I would say that any you know comedian worth his or her salt post-Python is a huge Python fan. If they're not... Get the fuck out of here. Sure. But yeah, um, it's interesting you thinking about Mike Myers. This is sort of a weird point that I'm going to make, but I thought of um, I thought of the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movies, and here's why. One of the really cool things about watching this movie this week, I watched it twice, once at home by myself and once in a very large, beautiful old movie theater in Brooklyn where John Cleese also did a Q&A at the end Woo! with his daughter which was, as the moderator, which was really adorable. It was totally wonderful. It was my first time seeing him in the flesh. I was completely starstruck, even though he looked very, very tiny from a distance. But he was talking about how the production of this, you know, they filmed it mostly on location in Scotland on a shoestring budget. And the weather was so shitty that they were absolutely miserable. He, he used the phrase absolutely miserable. <laughs> and I thought of Fred and Ginger because, you know, you hear those stories about Ginger Rogers dancing until her shoes were filled with blood because they were both such perfectionists that they wanted to get it right. And mm -hmm. there's that one sequence in um, Swing Time, Never Gonna Dance, when they're dancing up the stairs. And yeah, having to take pauses to empty the shoes of the blood it's but if you look at the final product there's such joy on their faces while they're dancing and it looks like the most fun like ginger rogers is you know fred's best partner because she might not be his technically most adept partner that he ever had but she her acting she just conveys such joy and makes it look like dancing with him is the greatest pleasure in the world and my feeling of watching this as a kid all the way through watching it now is that it looks like it's the most fun thing in the world. <laughs> and on the screen, you only see the fun. You don't see the pain and the misery and the being completely soaked and freezing. You just see the fun and the silliness and it looks like they're having the best time. So I'm impressed that they're able to hide <laughs> that they weren't. So now that you've mentioned Fred and Ginger, I am counting the seconds in my head of where you can insert a merrily we roll along lyric. <laughs> counting the moments until I find an excuse to mention my family again, which I, I mean, like yeah, we've <laughs> you got me back. <laughs> so feel free to invent a drinking game. I'd be honored if someone That's, invented a drinking game I that was based could, around you know, me. It'd be fantastic. I, give me time. <laughs> we could just discuss this movie in backwards chronological order, starting from the ending and going back to the beginning. Oh, yeah. I'm actually glad you mentioned the movie because... <laughs> because we um, haven't talked about it yet. Because we haven't talked about it yet because we're just... Oh, no. Earlier, you said that the movie is pretty much a series of sketches and... Yeah, obviously, because mm -hmm. you could name any any segment and you're talking about a very much contained vignette, but they did achieve something with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's a lot less uh, hyperactive and attention deficit than the show. Oh, of course. And I was actually hugely impressed watching it again because, of course, you know, I, I remembered a ton of it. I was looking forward to certain things, but mm -hmm. having just binged all of that flying circus, I kind of thought, I wonder <laughs> yeah. if this is going to be a little bit more, you know, insane than than I remember. <laughs> but no, I actually think that, um, I know that you mentioned they were all miserable, but I feel like that power was harnessed. 
the wacky works perfectly and you bring up the ending where they're all arrested for the murder of the historian you know when the historian first comes on you do think okay this is very flying circus but it actually does pay off in the end yeah you know it's interesting i sort of had not the opposite reaction but um Yes, this does have a beginning, middle, and end way more than anything else they've ever done up until this point. But it wasn't until I was, you know, reading about it or watching some some documentaries that I realized that it sort of doesn't really have much of a plot. It, it, is, it is basically, it's a perfect odyssey. It's just a series of episodes that have a common linking thread. But, you know, they don't ultimately find the grail. It doesn't have a classic three-act structure. It does have a beginning, middle, and end. And, you know, you couldn't necessarily just shuffle all of the scenes and still have it make sense. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it doesn't have, like, a classic, you know, save the cat beat sheet formula, which we've already discussed our, our disdain oh, for. Oh, no, screw uh, that. <laughs> which is, it's totally fine. It's interesting. Um, did you ever see Spam a lot? Of course I did. I loved it. Okay, so you know this. And our listeners who don't know me personally have probably pieced together by now that I have two great loves on this earth. British comedy and musical theater. So when I first heard that Eric Idle was adapting this movie into a Broadway musical, it was just, a, you know, everything I could ever possibly want, all of my loves colliding into one amazing thing. And uh, I saw it in maybe the second or third month of its Broadway run. And oh my god, it was... It was so amazing, and it remains one of the most exciting and joyful theatrical experiences I've ever had in my life. So this week, uh, I, f oh, I found a bootleg of it online. Ooh, sorry, Eric. And when it was over, I was too lazy to get up off my couch and uh, close the window. So it autoplayed into another video that was a segment from a news show at the time that interviewed the cast and Eric Idle. And yeah, Eric Idle was talking about how, you know, it wasn't just putting the movie on stage obviously he did have to sort of construct more of a plot than than had previously been there and i was surprised by how much i mean obviously there are a lot of the classic standby sketches that are basically just just ripped verbatim but there is a lot of new material and a little bit more of a you know dramatic arc that is required by the, the demands of a, of a broadway show yeah but, yeah but yeah but i had never really realized like how much it was just you know sketch 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 because it works so perfectly as a whole well yeah i mean i guess my point is like as compared to everything we'd previously seen them do this is yeah. something a lot more constructed and i think that they pulled it yeah. off perfectly so right off the bat when i was watching this a couple weeks ago as with you i don't know the last time that i watched this from start to finish maybe college, maybe right after high school. It's it's one of those movies that you just sort of take for granted that you know so well that you don't feel compelled to revisit it. And what's great about going for many years not watching something that you love is that little bits of it can get to be a surprise if you forget them. Mm -hmm. And I had completely forgotten about the opening credits. I was like, how does this movie start? And then there's the whole thing with the moose. Oh, good. Okay, I, I completely <laughs> forgot about that too. But I was cracking up even before the moose. I was cracking oh, God, up at I'm the stupid... First of all, first I go... Because I'm so smart. First I go, how did I turn Swedish subtitles on? And then I... <laughs> That's a blonde moment. And then I go, oh, okay. This is probably just something that you don't remember. But then even just, you know, see the lovely lakes. I, I was laughing about that before the moose even started. And then once the moose started, I remembered laughing at That's the moose. So what was it? Yeah. My sister was bitten by a moose once. Yep. She yep. was carving her initials on the moose with the sharpened end of an interspace toothbrush. <laughs> I also loved um, the hot hands of an Oslo dentist and fillings of passion. 
the oh the God. brother-in-law that was a dentist. Yeah, that was good <laughs> stuff. And then even it's, just the way that the entire credits change and they're just like colorful and really bright. I love that. Oh yeah, and the llamas. It's it's a really wonderful. It, it sets up right off the bat exactly what it's going to be, which is, you know, very python-esque there's no better way to put it did you try to read all of the moose credits oh i didn't pause but i'm a pretty fast reader so i think i got most of them oh i loved miss taylor's moose. That, that was so specific <laughs> and funny to me is that there was miss taylor's moose like miss oh, taylor's oh, yeah. hair miss taylor's makeup miss taylor's moose yeah this movie has so many great little details i think that with with properties that you know you love and you watch over and over again for me and maybe this isn't true for everybody but when I watch things over and over again, I tend to focus on the same parts. It's very rare for, like, it takes a lot for me to notice new things. I usually will get caught up in the rhythm of, oh, this is my favorite scene, and I know it by heart, and I'm going to follow along in my head. Sure. But this time I did notice more little details. Like, I never noticed that the son on King Arthur's costume has a mustache. That's such a wonderful little oh, I detail. Didn't, of I didn't see that. <laughs> oh, yeah. The costumes are so good. Um, Hazel Pethig, who also did their costumes for all of their stuff. They're really good, especially considering we know that they had such a low budget. Yeah, that's a wonderful detail. There's also a little sign when Sir Robin is bravely running away from the three-headed knight that says, dead people only. Oh. I never noticed that before. Huh. <laughs> there's just lots of, there's lots of great little, and like the the purple flowers are very pretty when, when he's walking through the woods. There's just, I, I just didn't, I'm not a very visual person. So this time I really tried to make myself pay attention to what I was seeing and not just you know, bathe in the wonderfulness of what I was hearing and let it wash over me with the comforting familiarity. Well, I'm glad that you bring that up because I think that in my viewing of it the other day, I think I was actually seeing it in the highest quality I'd ever seen it before. I think I'd only oh, seen same. it on, on VHS and I was yeah. going, this movie looks kind of good. This movie looks quite good. It's really beautiful. Yeah. But for the coconuts, you would not guess how low budget it was. And Why are the I coconuts say- the key to because they couldn't afford they couldn't afford production horses that's why they did it it wasn't just a creative decision it's i think that the coconut thing epitomizes the charm of low budget and you know leaning into something that is actually just a financial limitation did you not know that you're you're hearing no reaction to me because i'm just sitting here with my hands over my mouth which is silence oh (laughs) my okay wow that is fantastic Oh my it's God. so it's so good because i'm sitting here going why the fuck would i see the coconuts and assume that that means this movie had no budget I... well i mean they they originally you know they, they were supposed to be on horseback but like that would have made it so much less original i mean the, the coconut it's such a very iconic thing like oh, everybody yeah. you know everybody you were doing knows it that. before just silently with your hands oh my god everybody can talk about a blessing in disguise because i was cracking oh, up as yeah. soon as i saw it and not just because i mean obviously i was immediately awash with wonderful nostalgia but mm-hmm. it was also the first moment i went fuck i wrote down graham chapman is an incredible actor because oh, yeah he is he's riding a horse he does everything right the way he stops and begins again like i believe he's on a damn horse in his mind he's so incredible oh in yeah movie. and he's such a good anchor this and you know life of brian too which we'll discuss in our next episode he's such a good straight man oh yeah and i know that's ironic because he's gay i think he's also easily the manliest python and that works so well for you know a king for sure he is the manliest python for sure. And that's that's actually <laughs> something that, that I love so much about all of them is that, you know, for as completely zany and off the walls as their material is that they wrote for themselves, 
they commit to, in their acting choices. They, you know, they perform things with an earnestness and, you know, obey the logic that they have set up within their sketches. So it's never, I don't know, it, as funny as it is, it's never like, look at me, look at me, I'm being an obnoxious performer. You know what I mean? And I think it's because none of these men were really actors or started as actors. You know, they were all at university studying things like medicine and law and history. And they came at this primarily as writers and then, you know, just performed the things that they wrote for themselves. But um, they, they sort of all fell into an acting profession rather than being the obnoxious drama students that we all know and love to hate. Same with <laughs> big, sexy Rowan Atkinson. I was going to say, yeah, electrical engineering, all of the people that... I needed to introduce him uh, that way. Okay, yeah, I should have said that that's another drinking game. When Stephanie mentions how sexy Rowan Atkinson is, she does it maybe even more frequently than I allude to Sondheim musicals. Oh, <laughs> I think we could go back and count because <laughs> from here on out, certainly, I've got I've got some catching up to do, and I will do it. Mm. Mm. Oh man. Oh my god. Okay. You know what, though? Now I'm just thinking, I wonder how they originally crossed the bridge of death. Because if they did not have the question of how coconuts migrated, they wouldn't be able to ask African or European. Well, I mean, I'm not sure exactly in what order these sketches were written. I don't think that it's that, you know, they showed up on day one of shooting and, oh, no, we don't have horses and now we have to improvise. Like, no, I, I guess that's true. But I, I mean, if they had a completed script, I, I guess that's my that's my question. Is how much... I mean, this script underwent a lot of revision. I mean, you know, it was originally more of a loose form without a beginning middle end the holy grail element was something that came in a little bit late there were they they had originally written just a lot of random sketches about half of which were medieval and half of which were modern day and they ended up scrapping i think 80 something percent of the first draft of the script oh good because that doesn't sound as cool Exactly. It's, at some point, I forget who it was. It may have been Terry Jones was really eager to just make it all medieval. And then he was surprised that everybody else was like, yeah, sure, that's fine. So, I mean, thank goodness that was a really good decision on, on all of their parts. Well, following the initial introduction of King Arthur and Patsy and the fantastic African or European swallow argument at the castle. Oh, it's so good. The very next incredible thing we have is bring out your dead. Oh, God. <laughs> Which, I mean everybody prepare your shot glasses. I remember walking through our old house, my older brother and me, dragging something, I don't know what, upon which we placed stuffed animals, just yelling, bring out your dead. That makes me the happiest to hear that. That's <laughs> so good. Which like, oh my God. That's so dark. <laughs> that's so dark that like that part connected with us so much but I mean th that's already funny and then you've got the argument he says he's not dead that is hilarious he, yeah, that that's, sentence alone that's one of that those the little most redundant <laughs> he says he's there not are very dead. few lines of dialogue that are just jokes unto themselves that that are so perfect and so succinct like yeah he says he's not dead i never remembered like, that's that one. five words it's so brilliant in the same way that um i i also this past week watched a fish called wanda and the line you're the vulgarian you fuck is one of my favorite lines of dialogue ever it's oh, just it's such been a, a long perfect time joke since i've seen that one too yeah oh you gotta watch that one too but it's, it's also perfect but yeah that's that's such a God, I love that scene. I actually just wrote down the note, death is funny, which seems like a really insensitive and horrible thing to say. And obviously it's not funny if it's happening to you or to someone really close to you. Death is a, a horrible reality of life that we all have to face at various times. But, um, but there is something, if you just step back and look at it, like, cosmically, it's just such a weird, it, like, there is something 
morbidly funny about it, if that makes sense. Like, you live and you live, and then you just have to stop. And and like I said, I'm really, I love dead body humor and yeah. anything to do with a corpse. Like, and another part of that is I, this isn't necessarily related to this scene, but it is something that Monty Python does a lot, which is anytime there's a shot of a dummy falling from a window, that's just <laughs> a surefire way to get me cackling no matter what. Yeah. It's just funny. I don't know. Death is funny. Death is funny. I'm glad that we both noticed he says he's not dead, but I'm not dead yet is also another thing that you just hear a lot and it's something that I definitely say if I'm having a record-breaking shitty week or fucked up day you know and someone oh, yeah. asks me at the end how are you it's like I'm, I'm not dead yet I love that it's it's perfect no it's true it's a really great kind of life philosophy and again I know that it's folly to look for deeper meaning and to try to ascribe like a philosophy to something as silly as Monty Python but but yeah I'm not dead yet that's we should all be the old man says I feel happy <laughs> it's like we should feel happy that we're not dead yet. That's a, we yeah, should all be like that guy. I feel happy. One thing that I was kind of noticing about the movie is that I'm not trying to call it unintelligent, but I feel like the erudite jokes are kind of more few and far between when they actually have people that speak very eloquently. And Oh, like Dennis? Right. The scene with Michael Palin and Terry Jones digging in the ground and Michael Palin starts going on that rant about the social structure of the time they live in. I felt like, you know, that's something that you see, you know, in the sketch a lot is when Mm -hmm. Terry Jones is stripping while talking about agriculture and in a way that I could never possibly talk about agriculture because I... I just couldn't. My my brain's exploding and I don't know what to pay attention to more. But I feel like they kind of pared that down in the movie and there's still humor relating to the setting. But I feel like that was kind of the one time that they're commenting on the medieval world by having Michael Palin talk about it anachronistically. I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king then? The Lady of the Lake. Her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! But you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. That's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And also, I I made a note of uh, when John Cleese was talking about what his favorite parts and lines are. You can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. That's fun. (laughs) He also loves, she turned me into a newt. I got better. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, there's a couple other ones. Anyway, we'll talk to them as we get to them. And then next, there's the Black Knight. Which is just so crazy. And and you know what? That was one of those things where I thought, okay, I wonder if this is actually going to make me laugh or if I know it too well that I'm just going to right. smile pleasantly at, at all of the beats. But I forgot how effing funny it actually is how nonplussed the black knight is about everything and even just some of the dialogue i'd forgotten i forgotten the first arm that comes off tis but a scratch a scratch your arm's off no it isn't well what's that then 
I've had worse. <laughs> I forgot about I've had worse. And then when uh. the second arm comes off, I forgot that, that was because he's charging and Graham Chapman just yeah. kind of sticks the sword out and it comes flying <laughs> off. Oh, that And the me... image of him kicking is also just hilarious. So good, so good. Come on then. And then when he's just the stump and he's going, okay, fine, you know, r- run away. I, I just, I mean, we've... We've had arguments with people like that, right? Like, we, we've encountered oh, I, people who have just... They've been stumped, they've been called out, and they're still going, oh, okay, but I was still right about this. Like, it's Oh, accurate. my God. You know, uh, yeah, I wrote down... I, I hate to sully this perfect, wonderful piece of joy by, by saying this, but I wrote down in my notes, ugh, why do all roads lead to Trump? Because I thought of him and how he refuses to admit defeat or, or that he's wrong or to apologize or backtrack about anything. And it's this whole weird mentality that, that everything is win-lose and you have to always be right 100% of the time. But yeah, yeah. Trump is basically just a, a bloody stump. No, I not I definitely thought about the, the T word as well. That's okay, yeah. Trump. Except, I don't know. I mean, you, you can't... It's unfortunate that all roads lead to Trump, but it's like, yeah, all stupid, hilarious jokes this guy's a joke so of course you know you've got the bleeding stump on the ground saying get back here i'll bite your legs off and it's like yep yeah that that's that's what's happening no it's true stubborn people who refuse to give up or see reality uh have existed since long before i was gonna call him mr t that's not right (laughs) before (laughs) our asshole president I wish Mr. T were our president instead. Hey, just wait. It could happen. <laughs> yeah, I but should be careful what I wish Look, for. you stupid bastard. You've got no arms left. Like, just how, how matter of fact some of Graham Chapman's responses are to, to not only the black light, black light, the black knight, but the world around him. Yeah. And I think that the next thing we see is the chanting monks for the first time. Yes. Did you think that monk had a pretty mouth? Like, not consciously, but now that I think about it, yeah, I, I remember he exactly what you're talking had about. A, yeah. had a nice pout. A little, uh, <laughs> little <laughs> Oh my god, does Rowan have competition, Stephanie? Oh, well, I haven't even mentioned Terry Jones yet. Oops. Well, he hasn't really had a major part yet. He comes up in the next scene. Yes. Although, you know, he is in that helmet the entire time with the face protection. But he, he was my favorite as a kid his character. Oh. Bedivere. Oh, that's great. I don't know that I had a favorite. I don't know that I even have a favorite now. I, I always had favorite moments as a kid or favorite lines, but I don't know that I had a favorite night. Maybe it was Sir Robin, but I don't know. But is Sir Galahad your ultimate fantasy? Oh, we'll get to that later. <laughs> that's a few scenes away, but I mean, obviously. <laughs> so next we have the witch trial. Which, watching it now, I just kind of can't help but think a little bit about, you know, women being put on trial for certain things, whether that's socially mm-hmm. or legally, and just oh, yeah. the crowd of men behind her going, well, yeah, this was actually something that we made up, but still, everything else. Like, it, it echoed email. a lot of stuff that, we're, that mm-hmm. we're dealing with now. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a case of, you know, the, the real witch trials that happened were so, I mean, obviously they weren't, because we know that witches aren't real in the sense that we're talking about here. Obviously, their logic had to be completely, you know, off-the-wall bonkers. So they didn't even really have to exaggerate what was actually going on. And I was surprised that, like, in school, when we were learning about the Salem witch trials, that no cool teacher decided to show us this scene (laughs) as, like, a fun entree into that world. Because 
it, it just seems like it would be the perfect tie-in to get kids to be interested in the subject matter. Not that it's not already inherently oh, fascinating. Yeah, instead I had to watch the fucking Crucible. <laughs> and here's another thing. Connie Booth's acting is very subtle, which is not necessarily an adjective that you would normally associate with Python. But at the end, when she says, you know, tis a fair cop, is she being sarcastic or not? Because I always assumed that she was. And like, she's saying, oh, like, look at this justice system. It's really fucked. Obviously, that that makes sense. But this time I sort of thought, would it be funnier if she actually is a witch? And she's like, well, they caught me. That's fair. Do you Did you think that that was at all open to interpretation? Wait, or did I, am I just... No, isn't isn't that what's happening? Because doesn't she weigh the same as a duck? Well, she's convicted. But what I'm saying is, does she think that, oh they've caught me, I'm actually a witch, or does she think this is insane? Does that make sense? No, I mean, your question makes sense, but doesn't she weigh the same as a duck? Aren't the scales level? And that's the reason why she's convicted is because the question is, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood and therefore a witch? That is completely insane, though. I know, but in the movie... So what I'm asking is... <laughs> but in the movie, she she weighs are we, the Are same we not understanding each other right now? Well, no, I... See, I always thought that... In the end, she did weigh the same as a duck, which I know does not happen in real life. It happens in this movie. I know <laughs> that she weighs the same as a duck in the movie. And when she says, tis a fair cop, I always thought that was her way of going, yeah, they got me. Right. See, I always assumed that it was like, oh, like, this is completely insane. Weighing the same as a duck doesn't mean that I'm a witch. The whole witch trial scenario is completely fucked and ridiculous. However, it is it is funny if she actually is a witch i just because of the the way that she delivers the line so sort of naturalistically i can't quite tell if she's being sarcastic or if she isn't but she does weigh the same as the duck which shouldn't be the case i know but stephanie <laughs> that doesn't mean anything in terms of being a witch it does if she actually is a witch and weighs the same as a duck Okay, you're subscribing to the bizarre logic that doesn't actually... I know, oh but I God. think that that's what we're supposed to do. I think that in the end, like, all of that was true, and this is the world that we're living in when we watch Holy Grail. Wow, okay, see, I always thought that the whole thing was a commentary on how the logic behind any sort of witch trial is obviously not true and obviously oh, there are no both. witches and obviously she's not a witch and this whole thing is a setup you're saying we're supposed to see that the scales were rigged it doesn't matter if the scales are rigged stephanie if you weigh the same as a duck you're not a witch that's that's the fundamental logical fallacy of what okay see i think that this is where about. you and i are not understanding each other how on earth would she weigh <laughs> the same as a duck it doesn't matter that that if it means you're a witch or not, how did that happen? I, okay, see, now I want to go back and watch that scene again, because I thought that she didn't actually weigh the same as a duck. She's obviously heavier because she's a human. Oh. But they just saw what they wanted to see, and so they were like, yeah. Whether she weighs the same as a duck or not, they were always going to condemn her. That's the way these witch trials worked. No one was found innocent of being a witch. If you were innocent, then you died, and it proved that you were innocent. But... No, I knew that much. Maybe, maybe I'm maybe she doesn't actually weigh the same as a duck. I always thought that those scales were kind of like suspiciously level. I would assume that in order for Connie Booth to weigh the same as a duck, they would need to have heavily weighted one side right. and rigged it. But I think to do that in a movie, if they've already put a hat on her that is not hers and put a false nose on her and they've admitted to it, wouldn't they also then just like show a fucking anvil on the scale that she's about to, like they would set the duck down and they'd set like other stuff on it. Don't you think that they would do that so that 
it didn't I eventually mean, lead to this conversation. <laughs> I mean, okay, let me just let me just try to understand what you're saying. You're saying that in the world of this movie, the Connie Booth weighs the same as a duck and is therefore actually a witch. Yes, which is exactly what you said would be funnier. <laughs> I thought that you said, wouldn't it be funny if she actually did weigh the same as a duck and therefore was saying, tis a fair cop because she is a witch. And I said, yes, isn't that exactly what happens? My my mind is blown. I didn't know that there were so many ways to interpret this scene. I don't know. I'm I'm all befuddled. Anyway, let's let's move on. So after that, we we have all of the knights join the quest. We have the wonderful little uh storybook with the gorilla hand. I forgot about the gorilla hand. I love. Oh that. yeah. Oh, it's so good. And this movie has so many good little transitions, like with the show, that make it feel so natural. There's also so many beautiful animations from Terry Gilliam. Like, I think that this is his most visually beautiful work that he ever did. Like, with that stunning medieval influence. It's it's gorgeous. Well done. Well done, Terry G. Yeah. Um, So, um, speaking of Terry... Oh, sorry. I I was going to say this was the first time in my life that I saw any kind of depiction of God. Was the, the God cartoon. And so, while I didn't necessarily grow up with religion i got the idea that if there's a god he's a big fucking deal and you really should take him seriously even to me then i thought oh this is fantastic because this really we really shouldn't be laughing at this should we that's so interesting yeah i don't remember when i first saw god (laughs) as you know depicted in popular culture i mean it's always been you know Beard old white guy in a robe. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. So like, did you picture the Monty Python God when you thought of God after that for a while? Probably not because I had just kind of always imagined more of an Abraham Lincoln look. <laughs> American God. Still same thing. Like old white yeah. dude with a pronounced. Did he have a hat? No. Um, but he had a good head of hair and a beard and a very stern look on his face. Yeah. So to answer the question, No. But uh, it seemed accurate to me at the time. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> An accurate portrayal of God. Yeah. I love it. With a big old oh, silly hat. And then we have the wonderful musical number, Knights of the Round Table. Just a silly that- place. <laughs> Oh yeah, that, yeah. Oh, tis a silly place. That that made me laugh so hard upon seeing it, and even though I knew it was coming, that's such a again with with Graham Chapman's just completely serious, straightforward delivery. It's sort of it, it's a little bit of a hint of a revival of the Colonel character that it, he would do to shut down funny sketches. And but uh, oh god, it's it's so good. John Cleese as the Frenchman. I know that I once got in trouble in elementary school when I screamed at a kid your mother was a hamster and your father smelled of elderberries he tattled on me and the lunchtime aide to whom he tattled clearly didn't get the reference um because otherwise they would have rewarded you (laughs) exactly because instead of laughing i mean i didn't get in too much trouble but she said you know don't say anything about anybody's mom and dad that's not mean or that's not mean that's not nice don't do it ever again um but yeah clearly he didn't get it she didn't get it Oh, that's a wonderful, that's such a wonderful scene. That's got some of the best and most colorful dialogue in, in the whole thing. You don't frighten us, English pig dogs. Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person. I'll blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King. You and all your silly English niggas. What a 
strange person. Now look here, my good man. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough whopper. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelt of elderberries. And again, with the... You know, the Monty Python animal obsession. This is where it rains all of the animals the on Fetchy Lavash, I was cracking up. Oh, my God. I loved oh it. Oh, my God, so good. And it's the first time we hear, run away. Yes. <laughs> it's so good. And then the Trojan rabbit misfire is just golden. <laughs> I love the Trojan rabbit misfire. So after the Trojan rabbit sketch is when the historian comes in. Yes. And from there is where everybody kind of gets separated into their own little mm-hmm. journeys. Their mini quests, yes. <laughs> and Brave Sir Robin is the first. And I do remember thinking that Brave Sir Robin was kind of cute. Even though he's clearly wearing a bad women's wig. Um, <laughs> but oh Why well. is it a women's wig? Well, is, isn't it kind of like, he's just got like long red hair with bangs and isn't there a little bit of a flip? Like that's a woman's wig. <laughs> I mean, this was the 70s. They had, I mean, Eric Idle's real hair was much more feminine than anything that would fly now for men. I don't know. I, I mean, it I know it was the normal. 70s, but not in the movie. I mean, I don't know. I don't think that hair has gender. I don't know if you can really. <laughs> but No, but hair, fine, hair sure. doesn't have gender, but I think wigs certainly do. Even, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. I still think that wigs might be the final frontier of the gender debate. Until there is a gender neutral wig section at Iguana Vintage. I don't know. But the Brave Sir Robin song is so good. Bravely bold Sir Robin brought forth from Camelot. He was not afraid to die, oh, brave Sir Robin. He was not at all afraid to be killed in nasty ways. Brave, 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 brave Sir Robin. He was not in the least bit scared to be mashed into a pulp. Or to have his eyes gouged out and his elbows broken. To have his kneecap split and his body burned away. And his limbs all hacked and mangled, brave Sir Robin. His head smashed in and his heart cut out and his liver removed and his bowels unplugged and his nostrils raped and his bottom burnt off and his penis... That's, that's, uh, that's enough music for now, lads. But then we have the tale of Sir Galahad and Castle Anthrax. Okay, mm-hmm. do you love Castle Anthrax? Because I love Castle Anthrax. Okay, do you I... have mixed feminist feelings about it? Um... I want to hear it all. Actually, okay... I see how it could be a male fantasy, except Sir Galahad is is the chaste. So yes. he doesn't go in there and go, whoa, I've hit the fucking jackpot. I'm Stifler, yeah, you know, or, or anything gross. like that. He's <laughs> the tail of Sir Stifler. Because that would be obvious. That yeah. would be obvious and therefore not funny. It's funnier that the last thing he wants to do is have sex with all of those women. No, it's so funny. Here's, okay, so I, I always loved it as a kid, and I think I maybe loved it even more as an adult. First of all, Carol fucking Cleveland does the oh. best work of her entire Python career in this scene. She they is owed her fucking that. amazing, they and they finally her wrote that, her man. like a really deeply funny part that isn't just there to, to be a sex object. Yes. She's there to be a sex subject, uh-huh. which is a very different thing. Oh, completely. And I did write down one note. There's the moment when he opens the door into the the room of all of these, you know, young women dressed in these white, nearly see-through gowns. And uh, 
and I just wrote the note, thank God they're clothed. (laughs) Because if it had been the TV show, they might not have been, and that would have been very alienating. But what I love about this, as you said, it's a male fantasy, but it's a female fantasy too, because honestly, who who wouldn't want to undress a young, nervous Michael Palin? Honestly, like that's... I wanted to be those, quote, doctors as a kid. Like, you know, it's not, it's, it's just good fun, good, clean, dirty fun to be had all around. And you know, I wrote, so I wrote this down because they said, you know, during the show, sorry, Carol, we're not very good at writing for women. Well, they either they became learned. good or they got some input because the sexual fantasy of the nuns is after the spanking, the oral sex. And I thought, there we go. That's all I'm saying. Oh, wicked, bad, naughty, evil Zoot. Oh, she is a naughty person. And she must pay the penalty. And here in Castle Anthrax, we have but one punishment for setting light the grail-shaped beacon. You must tie her down on a bed and spank her. You must spank her well. And after you have spanked her, you may deal with her as you like. And then... Spank me. And spank me. And me. And me. Yes. Yes, you must give us all a good spanking. <laughs> and after the spanking, the oral sex. Oh, the oral Well, I could stay a bit longer. <laughs> it's like they can see into my soul. <laughs> yes. You know. And I, I don't know. I just thought that um, that could have gone a very, very different way. And it... And it didn't. I didn't feel any kind of ooky, you know, watching it. There was nothing I was looking for, nothing that made me go, aha, I, I knew that I would find something in this movie. But no, I just thought no, this absolutely. is incredible. And see, this is a scene that you can point to, you know, when, when people make comments about how, oh, you know, if you're a feminist, you can't be funny and political correctness is ruining comedy and like sex is funny and sex, like objectification and sex are not the same thing. Right. And being cheeky and naughty and a little dirty is not the same thing as being gross and dehumanizing yeah and this is it strikes the perfect balance of being something that like you know i'm sure many a 12 year old boy has jerked off to this scene but also maybe some 12 year old girls have thought about it too you know it's really wonderful and it's it's really funny and it allows the women to be funny like I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, they all have those gross names. Oh my god, the names are so midget crapper. They're midget so and crapper, yeah. Oh, you know, there was one thing I read Carol Cleveland's book, and I know Me you too. did too. Yeah. Um, and she said that there was only one scene that they ever wrote for her that she didn't like, and I actually agree with her on this because this was not in the VHS that I grew up watching. It was only when I saw it this time that there's that little scene that I guess got cut out, but then was reinstated in the DVD. Maybe mm-hmm. is the little. The part where she breaks the fourth wall and directly addresses the camera and says, are you enjoying this scene? I am. We were nervous when the boys were writing it. And then you see characters that we've already seen and characters from scenes that we haven't seen yet saying, get on with it. And Mm -hmm. it just seems to disrupt the action and it doesn't really add anything. And I, I agree with her. Like, I here's why the film editor is the best friend of all movies. I'm not just biased because I am the daughter of a wonderful film editor, but Hands up if you've ever preferred a director's cut to a theatrical cut. Oh my god! No Somewhere fucking a bunch person of ever Star wants. To, Wars no matter how much just... you love a movie, you don't want to. You never want it to be 15 minutes longer or even 15 seconds longer. Just trust that if something was cut, 
it was cut for a reason and there's no need to ever reinstate it unless it was cut for like censorship reasons that's fine but obviously this was not the case here it doesn't ruin it but it just slightly derails and slows down an otherwise perfect scene Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh and another fun little thing is that the only bit of improvising that carol cleveland ever did was at the end of the scene when she says oh Oh, shit shit. (laughs) And, and they were really pleased because she doesn't really like to swear and so she just knew that the boys would be really tickled by that and yeah. uh, I think at the premiere it got a really big laugh and Terry Jones smiled and gave her a big thumbs up anyway I thought that that was a sweet little heartwarming thing because we had speculated about like what sort of working environment was this for her what did she feel gross and creepy about being objectified but having now read her book it seemed like she was genuinely thrilled to be along for the ride and unlike you know all of these men as I said before they started off as writers and then became performers but she was always really an actress and mm-hmm. to be able to be given so much to do you know in a time when women were really given very little to do like this is still more and you know had had more of an impact than a lot of actresses have made like we're you know it's it's almost 50 years later and we're still talking about her so you know they they gave her the most memorable stuff of her career and she was really thrilled to be involved so yeah I'm glad (laughs) I was thrilled to read that she absolutely had a great time on the set of Flying Circus and how the boys she you know she writes about like which ones were a little bit flirty but nothing right nothing out of hand it it broke my heart in like the sweetest way that Terry Gilliam like actually called her up and asked her out on a date And that when she said she was seeing someone, it was like, fine. He didn't have her fired. He didn't, you know, nothing creepy like we're reading about all the time now. I thought, oh, asked her on a date. Yeah, like, you know, like a human having an interaction with a fellow human and not being a raging asshole when things don't work out how you wanted. And for anybody who's listening who thinks, oh, yeah, he'd never be able to get away with that in these times. There is such a night and day difference between calling a coworker and asking them out on a date versus your boss locking the door under his desk and then taking a shower Jesus. like completely different uh yeah i mean but you all know that right you all yeah know hopefully that, right? well, our listeners are smart and enlightened yes there's only like a hundred of them so you better be good people <laughs> <laughs> so sir galahad though i asked you if that was your ultimate michael palin fantasy i mean uh, it, it feels sort of creepy and a little predatory for me to say yes because you know he's he's chased but again I think we've talked about how in many of the flying circus sketches he does tend to play the innocent a lot Mm -hmm. and you know he there is something very attractive about like it's not just that he is facially the cutest of the pythons in my never humble opinion but um it's that yeah there there is that sweet innocence and I do like that not in again not in like a creepy predatory way just in a I like men who are decent and not going to take advantage of me or be, you know, weird and manipulative or intimidating. And, you know, that's sort of an easy way to avoid that is by going for someone pure. That's a loaded word. I don't mean it in like the Judeo-Christian whatever sense. But, you know, yeah, of course. Who doesn't doesn't have the major hots for Sir Galahad? Eh. Oh, all right. (laughs) <laughs> well, okay, I so so is uh, is Sir Bedivere your crush for this movie? You know what? If I had to pick a crush for the movie, I always was more of a Lancelot person. Oh, okay. I, I had well, I had that moment of kind of I and brave Sir Robin, but I always thought that Sir Lancelot w- was kind of the most like dashing. 
Well, he's kind of a homicidal maniac, though. We'll get to that in a, in a couple scenes, but <laughs> he's way too, um, you know, violent and masculine for me. I didn't, I, I didn't I make that connection soul. as a kid. I didn't make that connection as a kid. I, okay. I was only thinking about how I thought he looked cute when standing up proudly and introducing himself as Sir Lancelot of Camelot. Sure, sure. All yeah. right. Anyway, so next what happens is that there's a bit of foreshadowing about the bridge of death yes and in scene 24 which is which is a fun little again this this breaks the fourth wall in a way that doesn't bother me because it doesn't disrupt anything it's just a, a cheeky little way of like oh right we're in a movie haha ha. and then we have the knights who say me so mm-hmm. <laughs> have you ever seen video of tortoises mating <laughs> i have no idea where this is going but i am really excited <laughs> continue please have you Oh, wait, I think I do know. Is it the noise they make? Oh, the noise the male makes anyway. Well, yeah. Yeah. So there's an incredible <laughs> video. <laughs> Should we play a clip? Is, that, is it the weirdest thing ever if we include a tortoise fucking noise? Oh, no, I think that everybody needs to know it for reference because of where my, oh my story's God. going. So Ugh. there's a lot of videos on YouTube if you'd like to investigate yourself, but there's I'll one bet. specific video I like because it shows the male who's, you know, behind the female and um, he is making a sound that suggests he's kind of having the time of his, of his life and his mouth's open and it's this high-pitched And it's dirty as fuck. And so in this video pans down to the female who is just standing there as if nothing's happening. She is completely unimpressed, not making a sound. Women, right? (laughs) Exactly. And completely still. And one of the reasons it is hilarious is because it is accurate of oh, yeah. you know, men are our... bad at sex no matter what the species yes um <laughs> so i had a friend in town the other week and we were having dinner with some other friends and being the appropriate adult i am you know i bring this up at dinner and i started making the noise not so loudly that everyone in the restaurant could hear me and said i'll have what she's having <laughs> what that tortoise is having Um, (laughs) so I kept threatening my friend I'm like we need to watch the video when we get back to my apartment she's like no I'm like why not it's not gross it's it's funny and I kept doing the noise and you know not ad nauseum or anything but yeah if there was a lull I'd go and my friend just was never uh, laughing. My other friends were, but the friend who was coming to visit me never laughed. And she would just put her head in her hands. And I go, why is that annoying you so much? And she goes, because it's just kind of become a Knights Who Say Me situation. Uh, <laughs> did she appease you with a shrubbery? I was, or did I, you continue was, to torment her? Oh, no. I, I was like, I get it. Thank you for okay. putting it in those terms. That's a, that was a fun detour. I like that very much. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> but I love that they want a shrubbery as they are in a forest, right? Isn't a shrubbery a bush? A shrub is a bush. A shrubbery is more like a collection thereof. Like you, you see there's a little fence around. It's sort of like an orange is different from an orangery. It's like it's like a... It's a collection of them. Oh, so okay. They want it, a shrubbery. It's specifically curated and arranged, yes. Oh. Oh, that's funny. Not too expensive. And that's one that I feel, again, 
really appeals to kids. That's one that I remember liking when I was young because, you know, how can we stop saying the word if we don't know what it is? It lets you feel smarter than them because you're on to the joke before the characters are. That's mm-hmm. a very, like, elementary school kind of humor. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. That's something that I love about the pythons in general is the, oh, the yeah. elementary school humor for as much oh. as I love the you know the more intelligent the stuff as well system yeah yeah it's it's oh, the full God. it's the full gamut they every single piece that they do it just it it's the whole range of their intelligence and oh i just i fucking love them for it it's so good mm-hmm. and then we have another little insert of the historian's wife or widow i guess talking to the police so that's you, you see it as you said you see it building it's it's planted very clearly and you know that it's going to be a thing it's not just a random one-off so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah is the next thing the wedding there's some more really beautiful animation but yes the oh, yes. swamp castle and prince herbert that is one of my favorite things in the movie is prince herbert oh, <laughs> who oh, he course. calls yeah. alice <laughs> yes I will say that is that's my favorite Terry Jones appearance in this. He's so funny in that. And one of my favorite little lines is, you know, who are you? I'm your son. It's so it's funny. How is that funny every time? It's so simple. But the character is great. The way that he keeps, you know, trying to sing. And then Michael Palin comes in and fulfills a sort of Graham Chapman role of stopping the fun before it can escalate too far. I love that. I love I'd rather just sing. And Michael Palin is so funny in that, too, looking like the big, burly, scruffy guy that we hardly ever get to see him be, like being the the meanie. I loved that. Super masculine and shitty. Wait, here's a question. So the character's name is Prince Herbert. So are we to assume that his father is a king? So then what is he a king of? And where does Arthur figure into all this? What's I don't understand the the monarch system in this. Do we is this is this something that we just sort of take for granted and no, I never thought about it until this time. That's, some, that's something I've never questioned either although unlike with the witch segment I don't have a definitive answer. <laughs> Goodness me let's not get into all that again. <laughs> no but that's um that's pretty good because his costume was actually reminding me a lot of um the way they have Peter O'Toole dressed and acting in The Lion in Winter. Oh yeah. So it was kind of just a familiar you know icon of a king to me but yeah if he's not a if he's not the king, although no one seems to know who King Arthur is. That's true. I mean, it, you know, Eric Idle is the bring out your dead guy, observes that he must be the king because he hasn't got shit all over him, which is a which is a great line. But it's not like, you know, this was before photographs could be circulated. Like, they, you wouldn't necessarily know what your king looks like if you don't see him in person. Now, that's interesting to me because I was going to bring up Eric Idle's comment as well, but I thought he said must be a king. Or does he say the king? I guess that makes more sense. But I always thought oh. that part of the comedy was like, oh, must be a king. Because what do you mean a king? Oh, like those maybe traveling it's like Game kids. of Thrones where there's just a fucking billion kings and no <laughs> one can keep track and I don't give a shit. <laughs> could be. Could be. Because he's yeah. the king in the north. Yeah. No one no one seems to know or care who he is, which is why he keeps having to announce himself. And, yeah. you know, it's not like his people are living in fear of him or anything. Or... No, that's true. There is something very funny about uh, an authority figure whose authority no one respects. And that's a really great. It's kind of the exact opposite, actually, of what. Uh, Graham Chapman goes on to do as Brian in Life of Brian. But then Sir Lancelot comes and just starts off and everybody. Yes. Like oh, but before that, this is, another, 
this is the scene that I think John Cleese said is his favorite, is the one where Michael Palin is leaving and he tells the guards to watch his son. Make sure the prince doesn't leave this room until I come and get him. Not to leave the room, even if you come and get him. No, no, until I come and get him. Until you come and get him, we're not to enter the room. No, no, you stay in the room and make sure he doesn't leave. And you'll come and get him. Right. We don't need to do anything apart from just stop him entering the room. No, no. Leaving the room. Leaving the room, yes. All right? Right. right. Oh, if, 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 uh, if, if, uh, if, yes, if, if we... Oh, if... Oh. Look, it's quite simple. Uh, you just stay here and make sure he doesn't leave the room. All right? Oh, I remember. Uh, can he leave the room with us? No, no, no. You just keep him in here and make sure... Oh, yes, we'll keep him in here, obviously. But if he had to leave and we were no, no, with no, him... Just keep him in here... Until you or anyone else... No, not anyone else, just me... Just you... Get back. Get back. Right? Right, we'll stay here until you get back. And uh, make sure he doesn't leave. What? Make sure he doesn't leave. The prince? Yes, make sure he doesn't leave. Oh, yes, of course. I thought you meant him. You know, it seemed a bit daft me having to guard him when he's a guard. Is that clear? Oh, quite clear. No problems. Right. Where are you going? We're coming with you. Something that's so great that I didn't even notice until he pointed it out is that it's all one shot. Mm. When you're editing a movie, you can play with the timing, and if, if something doesn't really feel that tight in performance, you can tighten that in post. But it's really good, solid sketch writing. It's very funny, and it's performed so well because the timing is just, it feels like it's got the same energy and rhythm of a live performance. And it's, and it, it again made me think of Fred Astaire because most of those, um, most of those dance sequences, take a drink, are, um, <laughs> are all, you know, contractually, like this was something that Fred Astaire stipulated is that the dance sequences had to be shot head to toe and were usually in one shot sometimes two for the trickier ones so yeah I think that when when you have people who are really excellent at their craft whether that is tap dancing or performing comedy you don't need to have fancy tricks of editing to you know cut around their sloppiness you can just sort of let them showcase their wonderful talent without any sort of interference okay yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that we can now just say drink like, eh, sorry, I'm going to say it anyway. Girls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then, okay, so then Lancelot's squire gets shot with the arrow containing the message from Prince Herbert. And Lancelot goes on his rescue massacre in the castle. That was a scene that I had actually completely forgotten about when he just, like, I remembered everything else about this this whole subplot, but... I forgot when he just is, you know, he goes all sword happy and kills everybody in his path. And the thing that made me laugh so hard when I watched it in the theater is when he he doubles back and he slashes at the flowers on the wall. <laughs> it's like yeah. killing every living thing, not even just, you know, mammals or animals. Just Yeah, yeah. So and, and, and the king is yelling at him, or the king. Maybe okay. Michael Michael Palin, the, the dad, is uh, yelling at Lancelot about someone that he killed. And he says, I didn't mean to. Didn't mean to. You put a sword through his head. And Lancelot goes, is he all right? Like with genuine <laughs> concern. That's why I can never be attracted to Lancelot. But hey, if you're if you're into the violent types, then just be safe. <laughs> 
there was a time when I really, really was. Not never in real life. Oh, God. Well, I've good. never yeah, been no. fortunate enough to find a dude, like, masculine enough to actually punch somebody. That'd be a hot. <laughs> as long as he wasn't punching me. Punching is one thing. But anyway. Decapitating and stabbing is quite another. <laughs> right. I mean, again, it was as a little kid, I thought he had a nice face. I was not thinking about the real life implication of what he was doing good yeah no, that makes sense that's fair <laughs> yeah no i i thought he had a he had a nice face is okay all. so here's here's a weird thing i've never been particularly attracted to john cleese i think it's because i saw and loved both a fish called wanda and faulty towers long before i saw any of his you know younger monty python stuff so in my head he's always i've, I've always associated him with being sort of older but, like, for some reason, I thought that he was kind of hot as Tim. <laughs> as in there it's are those weird... who call me Tim? Oh, yes. <laughs> I think it's something about the, the makeup or something. Like, he, it, even though he's, the like, old and weird, he has those head? crazy horns. The horns on his head? It's not the horns, no. It's just that I remember thinking, like, oh, he's got very nice cheekbones. And I just, something about the makeup and the costume brought that out in him in a way that when he just looks like himself, I didn't really notice or see. see I feel I so crazy Lancelot, for saying I always, that, but I was kind of like, the lan- no, because oh. I, I feel like the Lancelot armor that goes, you know, over the head and down the side, you know, that, that medieval armor on your head yeah. is kind of what put his cheekbones front and center for me. That's something funny. Something a see, lot I didn't, simpler. Like, Here's okay. See, here's another thing: is that 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 chainmail. There are some shots where where Galad is the only one who isn't wearing it, and I sort of wonder why that is. Like all the rest of them are, except for you know uh, Terry Jones has the the stupid face helmet thingy with the feather on top. But I I sort of wondered why that was. It's like did they did they just like know that he was the cute one? And that's just fan service for the ladies, or was it just not comfortable for him? Like I I, was, I just sort of wonder what, or maybe because. You know, the others have some distinguishing characteristics like a mustache. Like if you take away his hair, maybe it would be less obvious who he is. I don't know. Just just wondered that. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, he is he is Galahad the Chaste. So and he's got that sweet, innocent face. Maybe if that's his character's indicator of I, I don't know. That's, that's I don't know. Either. That's what I'm thinking. Oh, Whatever. Gosh. He's a babe. That's my point. <laughs> Schwing. Um, <laughs> OK, so you're attracted to Tim. Mildly, That's not cool. not really attractive. I'm just saying that that was the, it, 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 I don't know how to say words. I'm sorry. <laughs> just, uh, the the tiniest right, bit. My interest was mildly piqued. I just sort of went, oh, not in the same way as like you and you know <laughs> Elizabethan Rowan Atkinson. Not oh, but just oh, okay. <laughs> okay, there is a I difference. There is sort a difference. of in the same way oh. that like that I felt about Terry Jones seeing him making out with Carol Cleveland, but not in the same way that you felt about Terry Jones. You know what I mean? Oh, my. I'm just thinking of those blue undies right now. Yes. <laughs> Good Lord. But anyway, so yes, now now we come to Tim. You know what's so disgusting, though? Because you said Fish Called Wanda. I just know that I'm going to watch that and think John Cleese is the hottest thing ever. So maybe I just shouldn't do it. You like <laughs> old guys. <laughs> noticed a few episodes ago when you were talking about your crushes it's like billy bob thornton and mark Marin and rowan atkinson and i'm like i also have crushes on people who were who are old enough to be my father but i'm crushing on the versions of them that were like 27 years old that's my sweet spot you oh well you are i, I don't have a crush on john cleese now yet <laughs> give it time 
Anyway. Once he starts making out with Jamie Lee Curtis, you're going to be like, oh, hello, John. I know. I just know that's <laughs> going to happen. So maybe I shouldn't watch the movie. My quote is Oh, don't but deprive yourself. Just Yeah, you're right. I got a massive gaping quota. <laughs> Speaking of uh, sexy things, um, I did try to see if there was any porn of this specifically. Yeah. And there's not. But for whatever reason, like... There are scenes from this movie, just straightforward actual scenes from this movie on Pornhub. And unlike with Mr. Bean, no one even had the decency of giving this a made up a weird title maker. <laughs> <laughs> so some nerd just thought it would be funny to distract the porn. Funny or maybe sexy. With... Here's the thing. Uh-huh. It should be obvious to our listeners that we equate funny with sexy. So there might be a lot of other you know, men or women out there who feel the same. And I don't know why you would need to specifically look for that on Pornhub, as I'm sure these clips are all also available on YouTube for you to get your jollies to. But, I mean, whatever floats your boat. Maybe that's kind of the dirty thrill of it. <laughs> I don't it know. It doesn't make any sense. Unless you're, like, looking to, to get caught by someone who's searching through your browser history. Like, why would you want... I wouldn't want to, let me put it this way. If I were to masturbate to an unorthodox clip of something that is definitely not porn, I would rather it be on YouTube than be via Pornhub. <laughs> but I don't know. That's just me. I like to do things subtly. Or maybe it's kind of genius because you have everything all in one place. So like after you jack off to like wet teen blowjob titties... Monty Python and the Holy Grail is right there. That's how lazy do you have to be because everything on the internet is right there. If you're too lazy to type something into YouTube, then you don't deserve to jack off to it. Maybe it's too hard to type with just one hand. I don't know, and you're too impatient. I have, I, I... Maybe it's um, because of the guilt. Like, maybe if you're one of those people who, like, jerks off to porn and then just immediately feels nothing but guilt, it's like, oh, hey... I click on this and I'm going to feel better about myself. You know, I think the lesson here is that anything can be porn if you have the right frame of mind. <laughs> Anywho. So then there's the killer rabbit. That was another childhood favorite. It's very similar to when we talked about the plague in Father Ted. Oh, yeah. Like that little white bunny rabbit is the funniest possible animal to have guarding the cave, especially when it's a reveal that it's completely oh, yeah. bloodthirsty and evil. It would not work the same with a with Absolutely. a dog or a cat. It's such a hilariously brilliant scene. In fact, I was reading in John Cleese's memoir, he, he talks very little about Python. It's only the last couple of chapters that he gets to it. But he talked about how there was like one of the most intense creative arguments that the five of them ever had was when they were writing something and there was supposed to be like a crazy chandelier that was going to be an animal and they were bitterly divided over whether it was funnier for that animal to be a sheep or a goat and they had their very impassioned logical reasons for which thing was funnier and I love that you know so so much intelligence and so much thought can and indeed has to go into these decisions like it's it's never just the first idea that comes off the top of your head I mean same thing with the dead parrot they didn't just say oh let's do a sketch about a dead parrot they thought let's have a sort of used car salesman-esque person who is just making excuse after excuse and, and trying to justify why there's nothing wrong with this product. Oh, well, that's a little bit cliche. What about a different kind of store? Oh, what about a pet shop? What's a good animal for that? Dogs? No, that's too dark and people like dogs. Cats? No, dead cats aren't funny. How about a parrot? And then you've got the beautiful blue. Like it, it, These things aren't, they don't happen by accident, obviously. All of the comedy is very specifically and thoughtfully and painstakingly written 
and yeah i would love to see how the killer rabbit evolved <laughs> that's great i love the image of them arguing over the sheep versus the goat but i think that that's a fair argument to have Absolutely. because sheeps and goats are both funny but for completely different reasons i have a question yes off the top of your head just just like gut reaction which do you think is funnier a sheep or a goat oh def for that sheep for me see same here John Cleese and, and two others that he didn't name said goat. I think a sheep is immediately more visually funny. Yes. See, this is, I suspect, so in, in reading about the pythons, basically John Cleese and Terry Jones would often butt heads creatively, not, not as a personality difference, but just, you know, they would always argue about the material in order to make it as good as possible. And that's, that's you know, the best creative collaborations aren't just people who agree with each other because then you're not going to challenge to stretch beyond your first idea. So... He said that usually the Cambridge people, which is Cleese, Chapman, and Idol, would side together. And then the Oxford people, which is Jones and Palin, would... He said that the reason is that... Um, and you can tell by which sketches the different writing pairs are responsible for. Terry and Michael were sort of more concerned with visual things and with the mood and the feel. And I think that that makes sense for a sheep. Whereas the Cambridge people, they had more like they, they were more focused on logic they had sort of intellectualized reasons for these things and it makes sense that you know if you studied law that you would be very argumentative about it as opposed to just sort of having a but yeah no for me my gut reaction was also a sheep and I felt very bad at the end of the paragraph when he said obviously anyone smart would be able to tell that a goat is objectively funnier and I was like oh now there might also be a, a hint of irony in that statement oh no you know, I know I know that not... he's not actually yeah. saying that that his former collaborators were stupid for preferring one or the other I'm just saying that uh you know you wow. want to side with the author of the book that you're reading and but, enjoying. But a, but a chandelier that is a sheep is way funnier than a chandelier that is a goat. Goats are funny because they eat everything and yeah. they're kind of evil. Yeah. But I think that if you're imagining a chandelier, which is like a big ornate thing, it's the height of like sophistication and having yeah. having the money in, in, you know, a grand ballroom. But it's a fucking sheep <laughs> Yeah, I also think that cry. I also just think that the fluffier an animal is, the funnier it is. Yes, I'm glad that we we're on the same page. Anyway, the bunny, the bunny <laughs> is wonderful. That's one that just it never fails to to make me laugh. It's so good. And then we have the holy hand grenade. That's the only thing that can possibly kill the demon rabbit. Yes. Oh yes. The, the instructions are such an apt imitation of religious text. There's the Book of Armaments where he reads, you know, first shalt thou take out the holy pin, then shalt thou count to three, no more, no less. Three shall be the number thou shalt count, and the number of the counting shall be three. Four shalt thou not count, neither count thou two, excepting that thou then proceed to three. Five is right out. Once the number three, being the third number, be reached, then lobbest thou thy holy hand grenade of Antioch towards thy foe, who being naught in my sight, shall snuff it. Amen. It's so wonderfully stupid. Yeah. You know, at his mother's funeral, which was a Greek Orthodox ceremony, so ornate church priest is up there on a damn stage and he's reading from a book so yeah at at his own mother's funeral my father leaned over to me and said you know then shalt thou count to three while this priest is reading <laughs> this stuff and my heart just broke in the sweetest way i love that my dad was able to make a joke at something as as sad as that occasion oh yeah 
Yeah, I mean, humor. Yeah. I laughter may not be the best medicine, but it is for sure the best anesthetic. Like I, I don't do drugs, but I like to get high on humor twenty four seven. I always want to be laughing in the darkest of times, and it might not necessarily heal things but it treats the symptoms and it makes life more bearable while you're dealing with all kinds of horrible shit oh yeah for me all, all i want is the thing to to treat the symptoms of how horrible life is <laughs> humor works right. just fine for me yeah i mean you, you you wake up the next day after you know laughing heartily at something and the world is still a horrible place yeah but what can you See, I could have just broke down crying right there, but instead I chose to laugh. <laughs> laugh or you'll cry. Yeah. Um, so then we have the, the carving in the cave saying that the grail is in the castle of... Which ah. <laughs> is so good. <laughs> and they're chased by the animated monster. And this is another wonderful fourth wall breaking moment where the animator suffers a fatal heart attack and that's how they get saved from the monster. And that... That made me laugh so hard as a kid because, I just again, I wasn't fucking expecting it. It was the perfect amount of meta that wasn't annoying. It was just like, oh, man, they just exploded this movie wide open without even needing a holy hand grenade. Yeah, that was great. And then, oh, my God, the bridge of death. This was my favorite scene as a kid. I think the line, blue, no, yellow, might be my favorite line of the entire movie. It's a tight race, but fuck, it's so good. <laughs> Yeah, the way their bodies just go flying into the air. Yes. Oh, I guess that, that <laughs> so is relevant good. then. Yeah, when when things go flying up or plummeting down, it's always funny. It's always funny. It's always funny. And then the way that Arthur and Bedivere get to cross is that is that he says, would that be an African swallow or a European swallow? And then the old man says, I don't know that. And he I don't know that. is <laughs> hoisted by his own petard. <laughs> See? Perfect that they couldn't have horses. Oh, absolutely. And then... We come to the climax and denouement, such as it is. <laughs> There's some. Yeah. <laughs> they reach yeah. Castle Arg, and it's back to the, the French taunter whom we met at the beginning. There's a battle, and then Arthur gets arrested, and it ends very abruptly. And uh, what, what do you make of the ending of the movie, Stephanie? <laughs> um, It doesn't frustrate me. Same. Like plenty of the flying circus sketches can frustrate me when they just end things. Mm -hmm. We see the wife come out of the police car and points and says, you know, that's them, that's them. And you knew that it was going there. And um, mm -hmm. you knew they couldn't possibly find the grail because that wouldn't be funny. And then you have like two and a half minutes of just the black screen and that music, which I did sit through. Mm -hmm. Thank you oh, very much. In case I, I, love, I, I love to, that music, yeah. In case I were to miss anything that I didn't remember. Um, I, I think the ending is perfectly fine the way it was because that's a movie where you're just happy plotting along with the characters and living in that world mm -hmm. and you're not on the edge of your seat because you want to know what's going to happen. You're just going, I'm perfectly happy to chill here for an hour and a half. I don't really care how much or I don't really care how it ends. So yeah, I'm I'm happy with it because I'm just there yeah. for the ride, not for a payoff. Yeah, John Cleese said in his little Q and A thing, he said that he can't stand the ending. The actual quote that I wrote down is, he said, "It's awful, isn't it?" And you know, people people ask why they did it, and he said, "We just couldn't think of anything better," and that was their reasoning for it. And uh, I mean, that seems evident every time that they just sort of it, abort something. Yeah, it seems like. But hey, you know what? what? I'm I'm pro-abortion, and this is no exception. <laughs> anyway. Um, Moving one long from that, you just, your face just now. No, dude, I, d I, I kind of love that you said that because just the other day, <laughs> I was thinking about when you encounter 
you know, people in, in life, whether they're strangers or friends of friends, I kind of feel like people with the conservative opinion will just find a way to inject that into conversation where it didn't need to be. And then that creates As if it's discomfort or acceptable. Yeah. But the yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I just feel like the conservative people are not afraid to sit with people they don't know and say, well, Trayvon Martin shouldn't have been in that neighborhood. You know, I, I kind of feel like that person says things. I don't feel like it's the liberal who just says for no reason, well, don't you just love abortions? Hand yeah. me that Hoover. Isn't I'll it great it how we you. won the fucking Civil War? Maybe you should get over it 150 fucking years later. It just, Ooh, do, burn. It just doesn't happen. Belated it burn, just... Confederates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm kind of wondering if maybe I should change my tune on that and just be the first in a group of people I don't know to say, so abortions are lovely, aren't they? Be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the closest you'll ever see to me being a cheerleader. Anyway. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so the ending. I also am not bothered by it. This may be the most pretentious thought that I've ever had while watching Monty Python, but like I, I wasn't really searching for meaning in it, but this, this thought just washed over me as I was watching it in theaters. A few episodes ago, I was talking about something and said, like, not having an ending in mind makes things sort of organic and realistic. And you said sarcastically, yeah, realistic, like a Monty Python sketch. And a good laugh was had by all. But I would like to come back and say that, hear, hear me out. I think that life is like a Monty Python sketch or a Monty, Monty Python film, let's say. Because it's a series of random events that have a single connecting thread or a common theme, which in life is you. It doesn't necessarily have a point. It's sort of meandering. And uh, the, the whole point of this is to find the Holy Grail. They never find the Holy Grail. You never even see the Holy Grail. This is a weirdly titled movie for something that ultimately has very little to do with that. You know, you don't always find your goal or reach your purpose. And it does end abruptly and unsatisfyingly much of the time. However, if you're lucky, there is a lot of fun and laughter to be had along the way. And it's the journey, not the destination, that counts. And going back to what we said about the uh, I'm not dead yet scene... And how that's such a good philosophy. Like, we should all be so thrilled, you know, because we're not dead yet. And laughter, it doesn't cure everything. But, you know, if, if we're able to, to laugh and to, if we're able to say that we're not dead, then, you know, there's always some hope. I don't know what I'm, I, I'm sort of reaching here, but do you, do you have any thoughts on this? I, I wanted to make sure you knew that I didn't start laughing at you while you were talking because I think what you're saying is stupid. I started laughing because you just looked directly into my eyes and delivered all of this with like a, a slight hint of a smile but very very much a serious face and I it just was very sweet oh, because <laughs> I do agree with what you've said as far as my comment about realistic like a Monty Python sketch I think what sticks out in my mind is when I said I'd never seen the spam sketch I'd only heard the record and you said so you didn't even know it was Vikings <laughs> and I said I don't know if that really explains anything but life is random <laughs> um, and absurd just not in exactly the same literal ways as, as Monty Python might be but mm -hmm. I know anyway I yeah. think I I think you make a good point. Thank you. And I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I know we'll get further into this when we talk about the conclusion of Life of Brian, which is maybe one of my favorite film endings ever. But you I know, don't remember they, it. That, oh, 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 well, then I won't spoil it for you. But 
But, oh yeah. But yeah, this is gonna be this is gonna be a big one for me is revisiting that movie because I remember it the least because I think I watched it the least. Oh, interesting. Oh, I was so obsessed with that one. I might I don't know if I'd remember it the best, but definitely better than Meaning of Life. Um, but yeah, life is very weird and and random and absurd and and sometimes harrowing and not very fun. But uh, but try to laugh along the way and enjoy the ride. It's the best that any of us can do. And if you can't run away (laughs) great anyway uh join us next week for life brian kaylee i want to say two things okay i've had an incredible time talking about this movie with you and me she's made of wood okay (laughs) (laughs) maybe oh my god this is the biggest argument we've ever had all right (laughs) all right Until next time. Thank you.